is your relationship with power? No, guys, I'm not talking about your relationship with your truck. Although, if there's a relationship there, you may need to seek counseling with your girlfriend or wife. What is your relationship with power? Do you have power in your life? Do you have authority or command or influence over other people? Are you a teacher or a parent, a pastor, the head of the HOA or the PTA? Do you have any authority in your life and how do you handle that authority? We Americans have an interesting relationship with power. I think you would agree. Our, ver our very nation is based on the rebellion against what our forefathers said were corrupt powers that were overbearing and each year we celebrate our independence and our, our autonomy by blowing things up in the sky and making lots of noise because we love our power, our individualism, our, uh, our autonomy. Even today, um, in a poll by Pew last year, or not last year, yeah, last year, 2022, it showed that 65% of Americans believe that anybody that runs for political office they believe has done so for their own personal gain. I don't think you'll be surprised by that. What is our relationship with power when it comes to being a Christian? There are many powerful Christians and even the church itself has had a lot of power in history and has been the criticism of a lot of people who look at the church and say, look at you, you're using your religion to gain power with other people. Meet James, the brother of John and the son of Zebedee. He and his brother approached Jesus with this request, this request to have positions of power in his kingdom. And this is Jesus teaching them about uh, Christians, a, a believer's relationship with power and how, how we are to use the authority that if we have authority, we will exercise in this world. It says this in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Who are these James and John that come to Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches us James and his brother John 
are sons of Zebedee, a fisherman. They were called away from their full-time work as fishermen to follow Jesus, to fish for men. And Jesus gives them this name. When he meets them and he knows them, he calls the brothers the sons of thunder, a nickname given in Mark chapter 3. I just, even from a childhood, when I heard that, I thought of the Bash brothers. I don't know if there's any Mighty Duck fans in the room, but I just think about these two guys that are uh, unhinged, and they're going, they're going around and posing their will on other people. You heard in Luke chapter 9, they called down fire. They asked Jesus to call down fire on some people that didn't believe, and Jesus refused. In uh, the, the parallel account of this, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 20, their mother, Salome, goes with them, and she's the one that initiates this uh, request. So you can see where they get their competitiveness from. The disciples at this point have been arguing with one another because here's what's happening in context. Jesus' popularity is growing. He's healing. He's feeding the hungry. Uh, he's becoming this very popular figure. He's a powerful speaker. And when he speaks, people listen. When he heals, they take notice that he's not an ordinary rabbi or teacher. And so they start following him, and the crowds get larger and larger, and the disciples start to take notice. And even before this account, they argue about what position they can have in Jesus' upcoming kingdom. A hundred years or so before, General Pompey and his troops have taken over all of uh, the land of Israel and really ripped the Jewish people of all of their pride and all of their leadership. They took control of the power in the land, and when they did that, they left the Jewish people wondering, as they read the scriptures, who's going to rescue us? Who's going to restore the, the kingdom of David again? Who's going to give us back our, 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 our power and our influence and our control like we used to have when we had good kings? And so when they saw Jesus and they compared it to the passages in the Old Testament, like the passages about the Son of Man who would come, this powerful messianic figure that would come and restore peace and the kingdom again, and Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God that he was ushering in, they said, we got him. And they said, we want a position of power in this kingdom. So James and John go to Jesus, and they angle for a cabinet position, much like an up-and-coming candidate for president all of a sudden gets phone calls from all of their friends angling for that position as attorney general or secretary of state or maybe even vice president. They wanted those seats. That's what it means when they said they wanted positions on the right and left of Jesus. They figured one day Jesus would call out and all of Israel would turn their uh, plows into weapons and they would attack Rome and they would overthrow the government and they would retake the throne of David and they wanted to be powerful. But what they didn't know, and here's where we're going today, is that there's a problem with power that goes unhinged, unchecked. That power that goes unhinged and unchecked leads to a prison. And finally, we'll see how Jesus' redeeming grace frees us from the prison of power. And they are about to learn that. James, along with you and me. James the Greater, and that's his name that's given in the Bible, is one of two disciples named James. I'll say this right now because the other James we don't know much about. There's James the Greater and James the Less. James the Less is easy to remember because we know less about James the Less. And this might be the only time in this series that I'm even mentioning him or Pastor Kevin will mention him. James the Greater perhaps had a big 
tall frame, or perhaps more likely is he had a place of influence already with Jesus because he's one of those three disciples. Who are they in Jesus' inner circle? Peter, James, and John. This is the James we're talking about. His brother John will talk about another time, the gospel writer of the Gospel of John. James is going down a, a, a very scary route when he asks for power because he's, he's asking for a position and he's using Jesus as a springboard for his own personal power. Merriam-Webster defines power simply as the possession of control, influence, or authority over others. Power is simply the possession of control, influence, or authority over others or over your situation. By nature, we worship at the altar of power. I'm talking about outside of the kingdom of Jesus, outside of being saved by Jesus, lost and alone, dark and, and cut off from God. We're born into this world crying for power. Any new mothers in the room? I'm sure that if they're not here, they are online somewhere. A new mother will tell you, who's in control? Who's in control of the eating time. Who's in control of the sleeping time? There's a lot of power in those little lungs, isn't there? There's a lot of control and influence and authority that runs that whole house because we're born by nature to desire power and to have power. And it's all about me. It's all about what I want and what I can insert and uh, what I can do to get more for me. Now, as we grow up, we, we kind of begin to bask that power and we know that it's polite not to cry every time that we're hungry or thirsty. It's most of us. But it's still there. And we crave it. It might come uh, through in little ways in the posts that we do because we want to project power or we want to project influence so we show the best pictures on Graham. We show the best pictures on Facebook. We dress the best so that we can impress maybe Maybe to be polite, but also to kind of show people that we're, we're influential, we're powerful. But here's the prison of power outside of Jesus, unredeemed power. You can get very far in life, and there's people who are Christians that can get very far in life, but if you, if you do it without recognizing the one who has given it all to you, it's fruitless. And it's pointless. And it's going to turn you into an insatiable monster that people will not like. And that's not even the worst part. This summer, Netflix released a documentary, an auto-documentary, featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know if anybody saw this on Netflix or has watched a couple of the episodes. Um, incredible story. And he tells it in his own words. Um, brilliantly named Arnold. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall when they came up with that name. He's talking in about his, all of his success, and he's a very successful person on all accounts. Um, successful in athletics, to the, to, the, to the top tier of his divisions again and again. Successful in politics at the highest level. Brilliant mind. Discipline successful in entertainment, 
box office smashes again and again. So there's no doubt that this person is powerful, and he knows it. And what I admired about his honesty is that for somebody that doesn't have a relationship with God and admits it, he realizes something that we can all learn. In the interview, he's talking about how he has, um, how he was competing again and again for these uh, Mr. Olympias, but he was never satisfied, and he could never become satisfied with all of the power and all of the success that he had. And I have to clean this quote up for church, but he said this, I never really was satisfied with my body. I looked in the mirror and said to myself, I don't know how this crap body can ever win this competition. When I brag about myself, that's all horse manure. This is kind of the other me, the me that I want the world to see. But in reality, when I'm by myself, I look at it and say to myself, it's not there yet, it's not happening. I think it's the very thing that made me want to be on edge and always want more. He's trapped in the prison of power without any kind of God in his life. I'm not saying that to to dish on him. I wish he would believe in Jesus as his Savior, but I'm saying maybe you and I can recognize this too, that when we run after power, we can even make it to the highest echelons of power and still be dissatisfied because power in and of itself and worshiping at the altar of power is pointless. That's what he's saying. He'll never be happy. And you might be thinking to yourself at this point, you know, that's great for him, but what about me? I'm not nearly as successful as him and I never will be. Well, power can make you a monster in your own world too. Maybe you've had a boss like this that's on a power trip all the time. Or maybe you've been in a position that you desire to have power and influence and control, but you don't have it yourself. Um, I was interesting, this week I came across an article by a professor of psychology at UC Irvine, and his name is Professor Paul Piff. Can't make that name up. And he said this, that as people become more wealthy, as their wealth grows, it's congruent with less empathy for others, less compassion for others. As wealth grows, now this is his opinion and his study, you become more interested in your own advancement and less interested in other people. Jesus says in our text today that power gone unhinged, gone unhooked, is like the Gentile power that I'm talking about. Do you see the Gentiles in the world? What he means in context is people that don't know God. They have positions of power. They wield their power over other people. And that's the way that world works. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's a power, that's a Hollywood problem. That's a political problem. No, worshiping at the altar of power also has another side. It can lead to arrogance, but it also can lead to despair. For those people that have power, it can lead to arrogance. But for those people that don't have power, they can also have a power lust, a craving for control, and yet still worship at the altar of power because they don't have power. 
And they're angry about it, and they're bitter about it. And I, I, and I, I ask you honestly today, maybe you're there because you don't have power and control and influence. Or maybe you're somewhere in between the two, but you're trapped in a prison. And here's the worst part about it. It's not just that the lack of power leads to despair and the presence of power leads to arrogance. Whoever worships at the altar of power, whoever has power lust, has something deeper going on in their heart. The quote is famously the cliche, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. John Steinbeck is this novelist in the 20th century, but he said this. He disagreed. He says, power doesn't corrupt. Fear corrupts. Particularly the fear of losing power. Why do dictators kill themselves at the end of a world war? Why was Napoleon so afraid and terrified of any uprising. The same for all the Caesars. They're Gentiles. They had no, nothing else in their life except to worship power. Now, dear Christian friends, how can we escape from this prison? What do we have to do to get out of this? The fear that leads to death is not just that we become a monster or we despair, but the fear that we lose is really this. One one very popular theologian said it very well. He said, at the basis of sin is that you're taking power that's meant for God and giving it to yourself. That you're saying to God, God, I have this. I want this. I want it my way. And if you've treated God that way again and again and again, then you're going to delete him out of your life and he's going to delete you from his kingdom forever. That's why he wakes James up and John up when he says what he says right here. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Who will rescue us from this prison of power, from the problem of power? It's the one that's speaking to James. It's the one who had all the power in the world, whose wealth is greater than all the countries with the greatest GDPs put together, and yet he didn't use his power to impose his will on his people. He used his power to redeem his people, to enter into this world for you and me, those that lusted after power and influence and control for ourselves. And instead of using his power for his own gain, he healed the sick. He raised men off of mats. He called corpses out of tombs with his powerful word. This figure was talked about in Isaiah that he would become a powerful servant. And that powerful servant would redeem us and save us. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is your powerful servant. 2014 movie, Unbroken. Has anybody seen Unbroken before? It's the true story of Louis Zamperini. And I know that he's the main character in the story, and there's lots of sermon illustrations in this movie. It's hard to watch. Uh, very, very simply, it's about um, Louis and his, 
and other pilots that were fighting in World War II that had been captured by the Japanese and put into a prison camp by a very sadistic, cruel prison warden named the Bird. They called him the Bird. He pushed them to the limits again and again and again, and he wanted to break their spirit. They were very strong. In fact, I believe that Louis Zamperini is a Christian. He relied heavily on his faith, and they endured. But towards the end of the movie, there's this scene. The bird has gathered all of the prisoners of war together, and he marches them out into the ocean at gunpoint. They're tired, they're hungry, they're nearly broken all the way down. And for some of the men, they may just be wishing that this is the end. They march into the water and there's no hope at all. And as the armed guards hold the guns to them and they wait for their impending death, all of a sudden, in the distance, an airplane, the sound of a bomber coming from the land towards the sea. And the men, they look up, and as the plane comes closer and closer and closer, what do they see underneath the plane but the American emblem? The sound of an American engine. And the plane flies over peacefully in strength and, and power. It has a low shadow that must have been so nice for those men to experience because they threw up all of their hats and clothes and they said, we won! The power that came to announce that they were free immediately made all of the, the, the guards put their guns at its side and take it, put it the, into their sheaths and they had no power any longer over those prisoners because the war was over. The announcement was made. The powerful bomber showed that there was no bomb, more bombs to be dropped, that the, the victory was theirs. They go back to the bird's office. He's gone. He's fled. Do you see the point? The Son of Man came as a powerful servant to set us free, to set us free from the need to desire power and to make power an end in itself. No, no longer we're set free from that. So we can be totally free as we serve one another. In fact, that servant that came into our world gave us a kingdom, but it wasn't the kingdom that James and John were seeking, a power of control or an influence, a place physically, but the, the power and the kingdom that Jesus brought into this world for you and me was the power over sin, the power over Satan. He's fled the office, and he's given us power to serve. That is the Christian superpower. Did you know that? The power to serve. And so underneath this king, uh, kingdom, think about how you will use your power if you have it, influence, control, authority, whether it's in your home, whether it's in the classroom, wherever it is in your community, that you use that power to lift other people up, to serve other people in the ways that, that Jesus has served. Jesus got down on his knees on the night he was betrayed, and what did he do? He started washing feet, something a rabbi, a teacher should never do, but he said this is the way that I'm going to show my disciples that your new superpower, the life underneath the kingdom of Jesus, is not to be served, but to serve one another and lead more and more people to the truth that we are free. That power doesn't dominate us any longer. 
how does the story of James the Greater end? Well, he speaks about it here. James and John say, say we, can, we can be baptized with the baptism that you're going through. We can drink that cup. What are they talking about there? The cup was the cup of all of the sin and transgressions that you and I did, that Jesus drank all the way down to its dregs on the cross. The baptism isn't talking about the baptism that we have here at Divine Savior, where that, that the great gift of water and the word that takes away sins. The baptism was the baptism of the fire of hell that would come down on Jesus on the cross. James would live out the rest of his life in service to others, but he would pay the price. He would die. He was one of the first martyrs. He would be baptized with fire. He would drink a cup that is the result of living underneath the cross. As we think about what life looks like underneath the cross, as we think about what life looks like as one that serves, think about your neighbor here at Divine Savior Church. Think about those in your community and be assured that you live underneath Jesus' powerful kingdom, the kingdom that sets you free not to be served, but to serve others in love. 